I was saying that suddenly my throat caught that we're go- we'll go with it as i say in my own podcast hashtag leave it in this is Trish lambert in uh taking dave kale's place tonight because he had bedtime duty tonight we're hoping he's going to join us but we're going to forge ahead anyway and i'm here with the token professor and you have arrived at the silmarillion film project that's right silmarillion film project and we are coming towards the end of our pre-production uh set where we're uh really kind of hammering out uh, you know uh, the 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 overall shape. No, not the shape so much as the 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 the, the stuff, right? The matter, uh, the the stories that we want to do. In the next phase, we're going to start. You know, fairly soon, we're going to start working on hammering things into an actual shape. Um, uh, but for now, we get to continue. What is always, I think, really my favorite part of every season when we uh, when we get to sort of think through the storylines from scratch. So I have been uh, really enjoying this. Uh, uh, And tonight we're going to talk about the villains. Um, But first, I have uh, a couple other things that I want to talk about because it is September 24th, which means it is that time of year again. It is time for the fall fundraiser of Signum University. And, uh, you know, this is the time of year when not only I, uh, you know, uh, remember uh, to remind everybody that Signum University is a nonprofit organization that subsists very largely on the generosity of our supporters. Um, but also, of course, to thank everyone who has already supported us. Our fundraising goal for this year is $75,000 uh, for our annual fund. And if we can raise that $75,000, we will not only uh, uh, will not only uh, you know achieve the money that we need to keep the lights on and everything uh, for another year, uh, but we will also have enough money to supplement our credentialing fund in order to complete our accreditation application because that's the big news from this year. We have officially applied for accreditation. The process is really happening. Um, I even have, I'll even lift it up again because I haven't yet permanently injured myself by doing it. Our accreditation binder. Look at that bad boy, right? Here it is. Our accreditation document. This is what I was taking hiatuses before to work on. This is the book I've been writing. I'm not going to lie. It's not as interesting to read as my previous book, uh, but um, oh, no yeah, there we go. Yeah, you're right, Francis. I should probably keep it occasionally uh, down on the other side of my chair, so I, I'm going to get imbalanced. Yeah, you know, just working to, out yeah. this side, lifting that thing. Um, but anyway, so yeah, it's very exciting. Obviously, and I, I, I am, I am obligated. Uh, to, you know, make the disclaimer, because I don't want to create any false impressions. doesn't mean we have received accreditation yet. We're beginning that process. Uh, The process is out of our control. I don't know what's going to happen in the process. We are, of course, hoping for the best and believing in the best. Uh, And I also hope that it won't take all that long. But the time frame and our success in the thing is it's uncertain. But it's happening. The thing that is certain is that we have completed this process that many of you know we have been working on for so many years at Signum University, bringing ourselves as an institution to the place where we can finally apply uh, for accreditation. This is this is a, a goal uh, that has been a very long standing 
uh, and uh, we are uh, really, really excited uh, to get to this place uh, and to um, uh, to be doing this. And again, and it's but it's also very expensive. Uh, so again, that's why we have our seventy five thousand dollar goal uh, for giving in order to be able to uh, raise enough money to cover all of our expenses for the accreditation process. So that is. Um, and of course, and again, that 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 amount covers our whole annual fund as well. So uh, it's all of those things rolled in together. And the really exciting thing is we've already raised almost fifty thousand dollars in gifts and pledges. Uh, we have over one hundred and thirty people uh, who donate monthly, who have a regular monthly donation, an ongoing monthly donation, uh, and that has been uh, a massive help to us. Uh, and it's really sort of the backbone of our annual fund, uh, and you know the the the, the generosity. Uh, uh, with which people support Signum, um, so yeah, we're we already have fifty thousand dollars in pledges and gifts, so we only we're only twenty five thousand dollars short of our goal for the year already. Um, so anything that uh, folks can do to help there, even if just even if it's just you know giving five ten dollars a month, uh, those things all add up, and you know we have many people who give at that level, and it's 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 it all contributes. Um, so. But the other thing I want to do is I want to talk about um, this year's fundraising campaign is a really big deal uh, because 2020 is a big year. You know, 2020 has been a bit, a lot has happened in 2020. A lot has changed in 2020. And Signum's primary response, um, uh, you know, I've talked about this. I don't want to belabor it too much because I know some people have heard me talk about this in other broadcasts I've done earlier in the week. But um the world of higher education is in serious trouble, very serious trouble. The entire landscape of higher education uh, is changing, and um, there is there's going to be uh, some major uh, uh, changes. The um, uh, you know, the sort of catastrophe of higher education that I've been sort of anticipating was likely to come sooner or later has come much sooner uh, because of the whole COVID situation. Um, And Signum's response to the COVID situation, I mean, what what my experience has been, uh, you know, as the president of Signum University, watching the after effects of the COVID pandemic in particular unfolding on college campuses or not on college campuses, as the case may be, um, and just watching what's happening in the whole rest of higher education. It's been, a frankly, a surreal experience um, because, of course, for the most part, uh, the COVID pandemic has not touched Signum. Indeed, uh, uh, you know, it's we find ourselves we've we've been staying the same all the way through right and as we have remained the same we've had the surreal experience of watching the entire rest of the higher education world attempt to get to where we already are um and it's been very strange uh to watch but it's been um nagging at me um that is i i'm watching lots of people suffering. I'm watching students struggling and suffering uh, in the midst of all this, not knowing what is happening with their schools or where they're going to go or what's going to, or, you know, what's going to come of this Um, uh, or trying to struggle through some really fairly difficult and inadequate situations. I'm watching schools struggling uh, on the edge of going under. Many are going to go under. Um, And um, uh, I am sitting here looking around and knowing, seeing what everyone is trying to do and 
with much difficulty um, is what we're already doing. Um, I feel like I can't be <laughs> silent about it anymore. Um, you know, that we need to step forward and say that, the you know, as I shared on Tuesday night, uh, the Lord of the Rings passage uh, that keeps going through my head um, throughout this time uh, has been Elrond's speech after Frodo volunteers to take the ring when Elrond says, this is the hour of the Shire folk, when they step forward from their quiet fields uh, uh, to shake the towers and councils of the great. Uh, that's what I feel like. You know, I, I don't feel, I'm not, I don't feel like Signum is, you know, uh, I, I wouldn't have thought that like we were in a place to be like, let's be industry leaders now. I mean, that would have seemed insane a year ago to, to like put ourselves forward as leaders in the industry. And yet the last few months have made it clearer and clearer exactly the things that we have been carefully and laboriously working out how to do well over the last nine years is exactly what higher education needs to hear right now, is exactly what everybody else is struggling and not able to do in the few in the nine months that they're you know having to work on it instead of the nine years that we've had to work on it. Um, so I'm again feeling uh, in another passage, another phrase I keep uh, uh, keeps going through my mind. I've been feeling like Sam um, saying, uh, you know, uh, we haven't put ourselves forward. We've been put forward, you know, and and that's again, that's kind of how I feel about it. Um, so one of the things that I'm doing during this campaign is tr- is trying to explain more, um, uh, trying to help everybody, both our own, our sort of traditional supporters, those of you who uh, watch our broadcasts and uh, who so generously have supported Signum over the years, um, to try to help you guys to understand more about the Signum model, about how it is that Signum, what, what it is that Signum can do, what, it, what we have to offer uh, to the rest of the world, to the rest of the higher education world, um, and also beginning to be trying to reach out more and more beyond that um, and draw people's attention to this. We want to help. We want to help students, but we want to help institutions as well. There's a lot that we could tell people about how to do this stuff. Um, uh, the 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 world that everybody is trying to adapt to is the world is where we live. <laughs> it's been a quiet neighborhood <laughs> up until this point, <laughs> but it's getting awful crowded now. And 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 which I welcome very very much. Um, but again, under the circumstances, rapid change is not something that higher education does well. Uh, and. Um, Yet it's in a place where it has to do rapid change. So anyway, um, in front of each of my broadcasts for the next few weeks as we're doing the fundraising campaign, I want to talk about um, an issue, a problem confronting higher education at one, you know, a problem confronting higher education that Signum University has figured out um, uh, and uh, just to help people see uh, how this stuff all works. Uh, The two problems I've already talked about on Tuesday, I talked about the student debt problem. On Wednesday, uh, I talked about remote learning and the challenges with getting remote learning right and doing remote learning well. Uh, The thing I want to talk about today is class size, uh, class mass. Uh, This is one of the problems, of course, with remote learning. Class sizes are tend to be too large in higher education. There is too little emphasis on um, 
you know, close contact between teachers and students. This is one of the things that is really undermining remote learning. And when you take big classes and then you say, okay, we're just going to do this over Zoom, right? And you, uh, uh, you know, and you, 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 you launch that and you have this, you know, 50 person class with everybody's webcams and mics on. And guess what? Like, it's not the same experience uh, as people get in the classroom. It's really, really hard. Um, thing about class size, uh, it's really, really tempting to scale upwards uh, in online education. This is a major temptation within the online education world, largely because one of the advantages that lots of institutions see in online education is to lower their costs, charge the same amount, but, you know, by processing thousands of students and not paying faculty, right? So it's really tempting to say, hey, like, Blowing the lid off the scale is one of the big advantages of online education, right? Well, yes, but you've got to do it properly. You've got to know how to do it. Um, and the two ways that it tends to be done, and fairly badly by traditional higher education, is either to make it all totally asynchronous, uh, so it's just the correspondence course model, which works well for some people, but not well at all for a lot of people, um, or to just have these large, chaotic, remote learning experiences, which are really, really frustrating to both the faculty and the students, and which I've heard so many people explaining about. Um, uh, or sorry, not explaining about, exclaiming about is what I mean. Complaining about also is what I mean. Um, so, but the fact is, the problem is, this issue is not really just an online education issue. Um, the, the, this problem is on campus as well. A lot of students on college campuses get very impersonal educations. I, I mean, I, I, I can't help but think of that uh, really... Um, penetrating piece of satire uh, from the classic 80s movie Real Genius. Do you guys remember that scene in Real Genius? Uh, that montage uh, when the kid keeps going to class and you've got the first scene with the auditorium full of students and the the professor teaching math uh, and then every week that goes by more and more students are replaced by recording devices sitting on the chairs until finally he comes in and the auditorium is full of recording devices and the, the professor isn't there either and he's just got a, he's just got a, a a recording um, uh, playing out his lecture to the recordings that are that are that are getting it right. I mean, it's it's uh, I mean, that's it's an exaggerated piece of satire. And yet, you know, it's um, uh, it's it's that that is often kind of like the experience uh, that too many students even get on campuses. The priority just is not it's often that not able to be on reducing class sizes until you can get to the place where you're really having um, more like almost like a tutorial feel where you're able to have real conversations between uh, uh, faculty and students to engage students much more deeply. Um, you know, people say, how do you engage students online? I have an easy answer to that. Lower your class sizes. That's the main number one way you can engage students online or on campus for that matter. Um, and of course, the the um, uh, you know on online it, online it's even easier for people to begin to feel lost uh, and uh, you know not not heard and not a part of the educational process that process that's happening at Signum University. This is one of the very first things that we set ourselves 
to solve and which I feel really happy about, really feel really confident that we have solved. Our very, our core principle is committing to students, to connecting, using the internet as a tool to connect with people, not just to distribute content. The average class size at Signum is about eight. Uh, that's up from about six a couple years ago. It's not going to get much higher than eight. It'll never get higher than 10. Uh, some of our classes are capped at eight, uh, so it can never go that much higher than eight. Um, uh, that's the environment of Signum courses. Your standard Signum course is a faculty member and six to eight students sitting around having conversations together. That's what, uh, that's the kind of education that we believe in and that we're committed to. Um, and we believe that this is the best, uh, and most flexible kind of learning environment, uh, that there is. And the way that we've set it up is that it's, it's scalable. So that no matter how many students sign up for our classes, we can teach students at scale without compromising that class size. If we run a course and 10 students sign up for the course or a thousand students sign up for the course, the students in, you know, if we've got one class with 10 students and one class with a thousand students, which wouldn't happen, but even if that did happen, um, the students in each class would have exactly the same experience as each other. Um, uh, we just we just add more sections, right? Um, we can do that because of how we have prioritized our resources and how we have designed our pedagogical model, um, and that is that is the core of how we. It, it is very possible uh, to do this. This is how you know people say like you know how do you do remote learning. Well, that's how you do remote learning well uh, by 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 focusing on those kinds of connections um, and we would be happy to share with people how we do this, how we structure this and how we make this happen. Um, I'm going to be doing a session on the 15th of October called Signum Who We Are, in which I'm going to be explaining our model you know, sort of from top to bottom. It's not, it's not going to be like a four-hour session, don't worry. In an hour, I'm going to go through uh, all of the Signum model uh, and how we address, you know, all of these 10 problems that I'm going through and talking about how this all holds together. Um, because I believe very strongly that Signum University is a model university for the 21st century. It's not the only way to do it, but it is a way that works and it is a way that is showing itself right now to be not only immune to the kinds of problems that are happening all over higher education right now, but indeed to be thriving in the environment that is that has come uh, right now. And we are happy to share with people how we do it and how you can make this happen at your own schools as well. Um, so that's uh, so. So uh, tune in. You can go to our uh, our fundraising page, signumuniversity.org/fund, uh, in order to see. There's a link on there, a registration link for the Signum Who We Are uh, event on the 15th of October. Um, so I'm, we'll, I'll be talking more about that then. And of course, on the annual fund page. There are also links uh, to our donation form if you have not yet made a donation and would like to. Uh, so thank you for listening. This is in lieu of uh, my main events uh, or my main uh, uh, announcements discussion. Oop, I'm, I'm going all over the place here. What's happening here? There we go. Okay. Um, did Dave, you, Dave is with us now, by the great. way. Great. Yeah, we'll bring him in. Uh, or did, did you no, bring him I in did. already? Okay, great. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, 
So, uh, uh, so you just quick reminders, middle moot is happening on, on October 10th. So please do remember to go sign up for that. Uh, and then the Lotro marathon, uh, I'm doing a Lotro marathon, uh, this Saturday, uh, starting at 1 PM, uh, for those of you who would like to join me for that, I'm going to be going to the great wedding, Aragorn and Arwen's wedding. Uh, and then I'm going to go backwards in time again. Um, but, um, anyway, those are the quick announcements following the long, uh, uh, fundraising digression, uh, fundraising campaign related digression. Uh, and now let us get to the meat of the matter. Um, Hey Dave, how's it going? Good. I, I enjoy it. I very much enjoyed that. Good. Yeah. Totally agree with everything you said. It is, uh, it is fun to think about and talk about. Okay. All right. Admittedly, I'm one of the few administrators who has fun thinking about the issues facing higher education right now. Um, But but I would like to share that fun with others. (laughs) I would like to help it be more fun for other people instead of horrifying, uh, which is unfortunately how it is for most other people right now. Um, Oh, I'm going to make that a sound clip. <laughs> I'd rather be fun than horrifying. I'd rather be fun than horrifying. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. Okay, so the villains. What are the bad guys going to be up to in season five? Um, so we have, um, yeah, big topic. We've got a, we've got a bunch of um, uh, sort of questions uh, presented to us here. What do the villains do about men entering Beleriand? You know, so we need to think through what is the what is the villain policy? What is the how does the discussion go right when men arrive? Um, especially given all of the offstage stuff that happened with men during season four, right? You know, we had Melkor off, you know, out of Beleriand for big chunks of season four because he was off in Hildorian corrupting men, right? So. Um, uh, how does how does he connect with that? How does he pick up on that? Um, uh, we've got the uh, the catch and release program. You know how is that going to work? And we've got a bunch of things to talk about there. Um, uh, how do they get through the leaguer? There's a there's a little more coming and going than one might think would happen in time of siege during this season, uh, and we need to sort that out. Um, uh, the Dagor Bragalak will be a surprise to the elves, but they knew about the dragon. Are there more dragons? How does that work? Um, we've got several soon-to-be-dead villains that we have to set up for their imminent demises. Uh, Tevildo, whose, devise is, whose demise is most imminent, uh, uh, we decided. Bulldog, Thoringuethel, and Draugluin, all three of whom are slated to die next season. Um, and... Uh, right. Okay. And then, uh, we, we, the, the, the who on question, right. Um, we need to set up, um, we need to set up who prophesied fate. Um, uh, this was a really great point. Um, and I'm forgetting, was it Stephen who was making this? No, it was Florian, which one of you was making this? Uh, it was Florian. Yeah. Florian, who is making this point. Florian, this was a wonderful, wonderful point. When we get to the story of Huon in, Bar- in the Baron and Luthien saga, um, the fact that Huon is destined to be killed by the, great, you know, by the greatest wolf of all time is not only, um, uh, you know, an established fact. It's like 
well-known every everybody on the continent knows that right so if that's going to be true we need we need to start setting that up right we need to start spreading the word about that and that i think is a really important thing that should happen in this season so that it's a well-known fact so that by the time we get Huan coming onto the scene in season six we will be on top of that you know the 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 viewers will be expecting that plot thread um and then how do we set up for the Dagor Bragalock? So, okay. Um, hey, uh, so I'm going to throw a wrench in the works here okay. probably because you probably got this whole pattern, you know, that you want to unfold. But oh, I got not question. necessarily. Go ahead. It, it seems like this is a good time to do it. Hakan mentioned it, and I, and I got to say that when I started to look at all this, my initial thing was, oh, my God, you know, we've got so much already – in this season, you know, we've got a lot going on already. And then Hawkeye made the point of saying, I guess last season we talked about like having the villains kind of not be as noticeable yes. this season. And, and and I totally get, I think for many reasons, that's a good idea. I'm just not sure how to do it and keep the sort of sense of menace going on. Right. I yeah. Mean, yeah. So anyway, so, th- so there are, I have an idea about that. Um, I'm a little hesitant about this idea, um, but actually I just thought of a way in which I think I can have my cake and eat it too. So I'm kind of happy about that. Um, <laughs> because th- my idea was, I really agree with Hakan and I think it, for two reasons, it would be better for us to have the villains on screen very little during season five. And Karita, this is the idea that I was reluctant to voice because the (laughs) villains are fun. Um, But I think it would be better for us not to, first of all, because we've already done a good bit with like political squabbling and infighting among the bad guys. Um, And we run a risk if we play that too often, we run a serious risk of making them just look like petty bickering, um, you know, ridiculous figures, essentially. Um, uh, you know, I'm not saying quite degenerating into slapstick, but it's, um, it's, uh, you know, there, there's a risk there. And the other thing, Stephen, uh, Stephen H, exactly as you say, the Dagor Bragalak has got to take people off guard. Um, and we don't want to be dropping hints you know, I don't even, you know, we don't want, you know, lots of conversations among the villains in which, you know, people are like, but of course, like, we have a big surprise in store for them, don't we? Oh, yes, we do, don't we? Like, uh, we don't want that at all. We want this to, I mean, I want the the viewers to be stunned when the Dagor Bragalach comes. Um, just, I mean, I, I would really like to... Uh, uh, kind of Red Wedding level stunned? I don't know about that necessarily. Uh, not, uh, not, 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 not quite that level, I think, but it should be surprising. Okay. It should, it should. Because that was actually kind of horrifying. So no, no. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it should um, be unexpected. It should be unexpected. It should be, they shouldn't be really, um, uh, uh, they shouldn't be really, um, expect, you know, anticipating that a situation in which they're anticipating something, but they don't know what is, I think, not good enough, right? This really needs to be, um, the dynamic I think needs to be, we have the good guys discussing, what are we going to do, right? Are we just going to try to keep him in like the, the leaguer's working great, 
by and large. Few glitches here and there, but the leaguer is generally working well, you know, and have some people being like, I think we can keep this up indefinitely. This is great. This is fine. We've essentially won. It's a long-term kind of victory, right? And it's a little time-consuming, but we're elves, so that's fine. And um, so, yeah, so let's do that. And then some other people saying, oh, but it's not going to last forever. And the other people saying, why not? It's lasted this long. Um, You know, we clearly can master the orcs, so what's the problem? Um, and anyway, so, you know, we've got the, we've got the, the elves talking about what they're going to do as if that's the question that matters, right? As if their own choices about how they proceed are going to determine the scope of things. And so we build the anticipation in the viewers that the question of what the elves decide to do is the thing that's going to determine, you know, sort of like the thrust and climax of the entire, uh, of the entire season. And then before they even decide for sure what they're going to do, wham, Morgoth acts out of nowhere. The wall of fire descends upon uh, Beleriand and everybody is scrambling and the siege is broken and all of their debates and all of their questions are all pretty much moot. Um, so um, anyway, so uh, that's... um. Yeah, Nick says uh, the Red Wedding has nothing on the second and third kin slings. Yes, if we want to do horrifying, we yeah, will have opportunities. Yeah, <laughs> we will yeah. have opportunities to do horrifying. No um, absolutely. Um, so anyway, so, so for this, in order for us to achieve this effect, again, we need to be not anticipating it. We need to have, you know, the the uh, the flood of flames be a shock. Uh, to the viewers. Um, uh, And it seems to me the best and most efficient way to do that is just not to show what the villains are talking about and what the villains are doing um, uh, so that we really don't have any idea what they're planning. But that means we can't really continue the development of those characters and those storylines. So here's the idea that I had about having my cake and eating it too. What if we just take the season off primarily from Morgoth and um, Gothmog. Um, maybe Bulldog. Maybe we can... We, no, we want to give Bulldog a little screen time because he's going to die soon. Um, that's fine. We can, we, we, we've, got a, we've got a good job for him. Um, but we don't get back to... My, instead, but we can... This is, this, is, this is where we get to uh, also eat our cake. Is we can talk about Sauron. Right. So if the villain's plot line is really just Sauron and his team, his soon to be eliminated team, right, his team, all of which have uh, expiration dates that are coming due fairly soon. Right. Um, He's going to be the only one standing of his core team. Um, So uh, anyway, um, the. I get, so again, my thought there is that we show Sauron plotting and doing things with his team of villains, but we show them doing it separate from Morgoth, um, Sauron not being a part of those plans. And I think that there are two advantages that can come of doing this. One, of course, three, three advantages that can come of doing this. One is that we get to show these characters who are going to die soon. Um, we get to work in Draugluin and Tavildo and Thorin Gwethel, all certainly. Uh, we can even throw in Bulldog if we want um, into the same group there. Um, the second thing that will come from this is we can begin to show a drift 
right? The drift between Sauron and Morgoth. It's not fully happened yet, but we are coming soon. Next season is going to be, according to the tech, the last time we're going to see Sauron working with Morgoth. Where was he? Right? Where did he go? What did he do? Um, it's possible that he just fled back to Angband and uh, uh, is still helping out, right? Behind the scenes and stuff. But we had also spoken of how we 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 want there to be some divide, right? We want Sauron to be increasingly disaffected uh, and even beginning to distance himself a little bit from Morgoth, um, in part so that when he himself comes back around, you know, continues down the same road that Morgoth is currently traveling, the irony of that will be the more keen when that happens, you know, uh, in 20 years or so. Um, but, uh, but anyway, yeah, we, we, you know, Sauron, Sauron and Galadriel, the long game, right? Um, so by, so by having our villain time in season five, focus on Sauron specifically and his lieutenants, um, it gives us some villain plot lines to talk about. It helps us to do, you know, continued character development of these characters and set up for their imminent demises. But it doesn't betray a thing about the Dagor Bragalach. Um, because if the Dagor Bragalach is Morgoth's plan and Gothmog is one of his, the, Gothmog and, and, and Glaurung can be the chief implementers of the plan, right? Um, they are the ones who are actually going to lead the assault. Uh, and Morgoth is the one who is planning the assault. And just at the last minute, um, I, uh, um, just at the last minute, I was thinking of another advantage, a third advantage of this approach. And that is, um, we had, Rhiannon was talking on the boards about, um, that line in the Silmarillion that says basically that Morgoth was too hasty, right? Um, if he had just waited a little bit longer um, before launching the Dagor Bragalach, he could have wiped out all of the elves entirely, right? The Dagor Bragalach was a success from Morgoth's standpoint, but it could have been a bigger success if he had been just a little bit more patient. And so Rhiannon was asking the very sensible question, how do we convey that? How do we convey that this attack, as dev- as shocking as it is, as devastating as it is, as much as it pretty much permanently changes uh, the state of Beleriand, right? Um, what? Um, how can we convey that if he had waited a little bit longer, um, this uh, this would have worked out even better? And my potential answer to that is through Sauron, right? If Sauron is not part of this plan, um, if, if Sauron is not even, maybe not even privy because he's, he's off doing other things, right? He, maybe he, maybe he's surprised by the dagger of Bragalach too, or the timing of it anyway. You know, he knows that it's coming. He knows that something is coming, but when it happens, um, we can have, we, we could, Sauron could be our instrument to express the frustration. Like, Okay, this is, you know, but Gothmog, you really mucked this up. This could have been better, right? If you had just, like, we had things in motion and we were planning things. And if you had just held off another couple decades and built it, you know, then, like, man, 
this would have been this would have been, you know, total party kill for the good guys. But no, now they're going to recover. Um, uh, this was a, a you know, and he's not going to voice that frustration to Morgoth. He's not going to yell at Morgoth. He's not going to yell at the boss, right? Uh, and say, "Dude, you really screwed this up." But he would vent that to Gothmog. That's where the tension has been all along between Gothmog and Sauron. Um, uh, and it would be natural enough, right, for Gothmog to be boasting to Sauron when Gothmog sees Sauron again after the Dagor Bragalak begins. Um, and for him to be boasting and saying, see, like, I'm getting stuff done up here. I don't know what petty plots you've been hatching like usual, right? But, um, but uh, look at this, right? Here I am, the flaming iron fist of, uh, of, of Morgoth, and we have... Um, uh, you know, I have we have, I've stricken, you know, the, the mighty death blow uh, to these elves while you've been playing your little games. Right. We have uh, stricken this entire thing. Uh, this, you know, we've, uh, uh, you know, driven our fist straight into them. And Sauron then responds and is like, actually, you're an idiot. Um, yes. Yes. You guys succeeded. But, you know. You're just as foolish as Glaurung was when he broke out as a teenager, you know, um, you know, at the end of season four. Um, so I am. Um, uh, I'm thinking that, um, yeah, Nick, exactly. One of the things one one of the particular ways in which I think we can like a, on the Sauron's list of if you had waited a little longer these things would have been in place and therefore the victory at the battle would have been complete. Um, one answer I was thinking about for that, Nick, is as you suggest, the timing of the taking of Minas Tirith, right? He's going to plan to take Minas Tirith. Sauron is going to take Minas Tirith and thereby neutralize this critical link in the middle of their defensive line, right? And if they had waited until after he had done that, right, it would have been much easier. Um, uh, that's uh, uh, one thing that came to mind. One way that we could uh, that we could play that. Um, yes, Rhiannon, exactly. Sauron could say that if they had waited longer, he would have been able to destroy the alliance between men and elves. Yes, that's the kind of objective that is dear to Sauron's heart. That's the way that Sauron operates, and that's the way we can show him operating. Um, it's, it's another reason, of course, to uh, not shy away from showing Sauron during this season because we want we do want to have the fake Amlach incident, um, and uh, and and again so showing Sauron at work there, uh, setting in for some things uh, uh, for, for that stuff. Rihanna and I agree. Um, so it's not going to be hard for Sauron to pr- pr- to produce a list of if you had let these petty plots, as you call them, if you had let them bear fruit just a little bit longer. I had things lined up so that Beleriand would have been not quite completely defenseless, but would have been compromised, right? Um, uh, And you would have been able not just to achieve a victory in places, but to have swept them away in front of you. Um, uh, So, um, anyway... um, yeah, Stephen, Sauron does prefer the indirect approach. That's certainly how we've been, um, you know, building his character. 
and uh, and it, it seems to me it seems to me to fit. I mean, we we know, um, and of course, once again, we get irony, right? Um, you know, Sauron in the Lord of the Rings is going to unleash his battle too soon. Um, uh, you know, because of the provocation by Aragorn, of course. And so, again, we can have, we can, uh, uh, you know, I don't know who we have reminding him of it or something, right? You know, probably no one's going to remind him to his face. Um, but to have somebody echoing uh, sort of these complaints, right, that it's, this is, this is too soon. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um Florian, yes, I agree. They could have had Olfang and his people in a few decades. Um, yeah, Sauron could be working to bring up, you know, some of those other peoples of men. Um, and they're not there yet, right? Um, yeah, th- that is certainly another thing that, that, that they could see, you know, happening there. Um, now, the, um, the question, uh, the question of dragons. Are there more dragons? I dislike the idea of showing more dragons yet because um, Glaurung, I mean, there have to be more dragons, obviously. Uh, Glaurung is going to have a brood. He needs to have a brood um, somehow. I don't know with whom he breeds in order to have a brood exactly. But um, presumably the breeding is going to happen upstage anyway. <laughs> so I'm not too worried about that. Uh, but anyway, uh, there are going to be other dragons. Um, and <laughs> Karina says, life finds a way. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. That's a good answer, Karina. I like that. Um, but um, but I think we can avoid baby dragons for now. We don't want cute little mini Glaurungs, that's for sure. Um but um, I, the reason I feel resistant to that right now is that the Dagor Bragalach is Glaurung revealed in his splendor. And I really think it needs to be solitary splendor if it's going to be um, uh, if it's going to be maximally effective. Um, I, you know, I, I kind of want him to be the only um, uh, for him to be the only dragon on the horizon. Right. Um, at least at this point. Um, so, yeah. Um, plus, it seems to me more fitting. In a sense, this battle, the Dagor Bragalak, is Morgoth's test of concept where the dragons are concerned. Right. I mean, it's why his previous outbreak at the end of season four was frustrating, uh, because it it betrayed the idea before the concept was really proven. Um, uh, but but the, the Dagor Bragalak is the proof of concept, and it's a triumphant proof of concept for Glaurung. Um, he, it, it works. Um, uh, no longer relying on orcs alone. Yeah, this dragon thing is good. And so it, it seems to me a very logical follow-up from Morgoth's perspective that after the Dagor Bragalak win... Uh, Glaurung pans out pretty well indeed against the armies of the uh, of the of the elves. That Morgoth says, "Okay, and now more dragons, right? Let's uh, 
let's replicate this success, this success and get the assembly line running. That seems like a logical response to the Dagor Bragalak. And also from Glaurung's perspective, it seems to me to make a lot more sense as well, in the sense that after the Dagor Bragalak, he's established himself, right? Um, and this, of course, is even more true after the, you know, he's going to segue to full Dragon King of Nargothrond mode, right? Um, in uh, in in the in the post near Arnoidiad world, um, but he's he's arrived, right? He's arrived and he's establishing himself. He's establishing his authority. I think that's when he's going to become Glaurung. I mean, after I think after the Dagor Bragalak, Glaurung is going to be basically taking his place as one of the very chief lieutenants of Morgoth. By the time we get to the Turin Turambar story. Glaurung is basically going to be his number one. Um, there's nobody, not even Sauron, because Sauron skedaddled during the Baron and Luthien story. Um, so there isn't going to be anybody above Glaurung um, uh, who is the number one instrument uh, of Morgoth in Beleriand. Um, Gothmog isn't out there going on the, you know, going out and, like, wrecking Nargothrond all by himself, right? That's, um, um, you know, leading the armies against Nargothrond. Um, so, uh, um, so, yeah, yeah, I think, um, I think that we, that, that makes sense to me. Now, I, I, I agree, um, Marie, that, I mean, there's only 17 years between the Dagor Bragalak and the Near Knife. Um, so if we want more dragons there, we need to uh, get moving on the dragon thing. Yes. Um, I don't know. I kind of like the idea. So we certainly need the point at which, the point by which we must have multiple dragons. Um, the the point at which we cannot we cannot possibly allow ourselves to arrive without multiple dragons on the scene is the fall of Gondolin. Right, the fall of Gondolin needs to be attacked by multiple dragons. I kind of like the multiple dragons being revealed at the fall of Gondolin. Um, there needs to be. Gondolin is the greatest stronghold of the elves. It's not only its secrecy, but even once it is discovered, it's going to be very, very hard to take. Um, it is immensely well defended. Um, and I love the idea of building up to the fall of Gondolin. Turgon is going to be in full patriotic mode, right? I mean, he has doubled down on Gondolin is impregnable, right? This refuge that we have built is able to withstand even the attention of Morgoth himself, right? He is confident in Gondolin. And I would like, when we get there, to have our viewers catching the sort of contagious enthusiasm of Turgon, have it really difficult for them to imagine Gondolin falling. And then an army of multiple dragons show up like the, you know, reminiscent of the attack of Glaurung and the Dagor Bragalach, but instead, you know, a phalanx of them. And it should just be like 
that's not fair. <laughs> that's not fair. How are we supposed to fight against that? Um, so, um, anyway, I, I, um, uh, I would, we obviously have to have multiple dragons by then. I would not be disappointed not to have multiple dragons by the near Nithar Noidiad, because I think that the big, we don't want the betrayal of Ulfang to be, um, uh, to be, uh, uh, overshadowed by the assault of the multiple dragons, I think. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Balrogs riding dragons up to the walls of Gondolin, up the walls of drag uh, of Gondolin for that matter, Florian. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I think this is a good idea. Save the multiple dragons, save the multiple dragons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yep, yep. Um, and Marie, you're right. The betrayal is not incidental. It can't be. It can't be incidental. The, the betrayal in the near ninth can't be incidental. Um, and again, it's if if that's when we reveal the multiple dragons, it's going to feel like I, to me th- there's at least the risk um, that you know the the Easterlings piling in against the rear guard of Mythros uh, is going to be overshadowed by, you know, the assault of the, you know, the, the multi-dragon assault. Um, uh, so, um, okay. So the question of how long does it take dragons to grow up? Well, it depends on what you mean by up, right? Um, uh, it's, if we, look, we only have one model of this in Tolkien's world and it's an unreliable model because it's Smaug. Um, Smaug is the only dragon, um, apart from the fact that Glaurung is not yet full grown and then we see him full grown. We do get him in two separate states, right? Um, but, um, with Smaug, we get several references to him increasing, right? Him aging and increasing in size, whether it's that he's now too big and old, uh, and, by implication, fat uh, to get through the secret tunnel, uh, you know, tunnel and door uh, into Erebor uh, in chapter one of The Hobbit, or um, you know whether it's his own Smaug's own reflections upon how he used to be and how he is now. Um, uh, that's one of the clearest. Um, that's one of the clearest connections that we get about dragons maturing and getting larger and more formidable as they age. Um, again, we, 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 we do get that one reference to Glaurung not yet being full grown, but with Smaug, um, uh, Smaug says in retrospect that he was but young and tender when he sacked Erebor and Dale in the first place. Um, that sounds a little bit like hyperbole, right? He, it's not like he was a, a little baby dragon, when he took out Erebor and Dale, but compared to his magnificence now, he was, but by comparison, only young and tender. Um, uh, so anyway, um, uh, well, and so that was how many years from the time he sacked to the time we're going back to take him. Couple hundred, couple hundred. Okay. Well, there's, there's one metric. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, and Glaurung uh, grows up 
I'm trying to remember how how old was Thorin when Aragorn when Aragorn fell. If somebody gets the dates, Jeez, can remind me the dates. Oh, Thorin, no Thorin. Thorin, yeah. Because yeah, uh, he's like he's old at the end. Yeah, uh, you know, in the Hobbit, he's like two fifty ish. Right, at the time right. of the Hobbit. Um, so yeah, it's 171 years. Yeah, that's what I thought. It's in the in the ballpark of 200 years. Because um, uh, yeah, I thought I thought Thorin was young, like 50 ish, uh, when uh, uh, when Erebor fell. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we can. I mean, <clears throat> we can tamper with this fairly freely. I don't think we have to show dragons taking hundreds of years to age. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Okay, great. Marie says Thorin was 24 when Erebor fell. Okay, great. Great. Um, yeah, so the question is, how long from hatchling to usefulness uh, for dragons? And I don't know. Um, but we've got quite some time. Uh, Marie, what are our dates? How long until the fall of Gondolin? How long between the Dagor Bragalak and the fall of Gondolin? Um, well, yeah. How long between uh, between there? And then, so I, wait, give us three dates. Give us the date of the Dagor Bragalak, the date of the um, the death of Glaurung, uh, and the death of, or and the time and the date rather of the fall of Gondolin. 55 years, say Stephen H. and Marie. Okay, in total uh, between the two. Okay. All right. All right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, if there's only 55 years total until the fall of Gondolin, then yeah, I think think, uh, after the successful experiment of the Dagor Bragalak is when Morgoth puts Glaurung out to stud, right? That's what he's doing. He's busy begetting offspring uh, in the 17 years between the Dagor Bragalak and the Nirnaithornoidiad. Um, and, uh, okay, great. Marie says we got 455 for the Nirnaith, 472 for the death of Glaurung. Uh, no, sorry, the near knife in 472. The death of Glaurung is 499, and the fall of Gondolin is 510. Okay, so we've got 44 years between the Dagor Bragalak and Glaurung's death. Um, uh, and it's so, really, the, the height of Glaurung's power and influence is in the years between the near knife and his death, the death of Glaurung, right? Um, so we've got that 20, what, 27 years uh, right um, b- between the near knife and Glaurung's death, um, that's a that's a you know in elf terms that's a blink of an eye, but that that's a fairly good run uh, that he has in there. Um, so if we have him during those seventeen years focusing focusing on reproduction, right? He, he's 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 a busy guy, um, and then uh, uh, and then the the dragons will still have plenty of time to grow up. Um, you know, even even you know if we assume you know, the least of Glaurung's brood, say, are born around 470 or so, um, that still gives them 40 years um, before the fall of Gondolin, and not a hundred, you know, less than 100% of the dragons are going to go into the fall of Gondolin, because some are going to stay to continue the breeding program. Um, uh, so we would have to say, there, therefore, that dragons would have to grow... Um, Stephen covered, as you say, from hatchling to usefulness um, within 
40 years or so. But that doesn't seem to me like too much of a stretch. I think we could have them be um, very useful. Not as impressive as... So even when they show up at the fall of Gondolin, um, we don't have to have them be all the size of Glaurung, right? Um, like the size that Glaurung was at his at his peak there. Um, uh, so, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Stephen H., hang on, I want to come back to the Karkaroth question because it's a really interesting and important question. Um, but, Stephen H., you're certainly right. Morgoth can cheat, right? Uh, he doesn't have to just, uh, you know, Morgoth breeding dragons, you know, isn't like, uh, you know, hunters breeding um, hounds or something like that, right? Um, you know, you don't just... Uh, pair off the mating couple, wait to see what their offspring looks like, select among their offspring and mate them again. Uh, he can be a little bit more direct in this process, right? Um, uh, so we would have the opportunity, Stephen, I think, to show him sort of augmenting the dragons, right? Um, and um, growing them a little bit more actively. So... Um, growing them less like a normal farmer grows his crops and more like Hagrid grows his giant pumpkins, uh, perhaps. Um, yes, yes. Um, and thereby diminishing himself, Michael, exactly. P- putting him, putting his own strength into his, uh, you know, into his slaves as he is wont to do. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. I think we can easily, um, we can easily work on that. Um, okay. Uh, all right. Um, so yes, I think we need to hold off. I don't even want to hint at baby dragons yet. I'm not sure I ever want to hint at baby dragons. We don't want cute. We don't want anyone to look at the br- the brood of Glaurung and say, "Aww, uh, that's just not the effect we're going well, you for." Could until you watch one of them eat a sibling, <laughs> right? <laughs> Ripping each other apart. It's like, uh, oh, that's so cute. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, well, actually, see, but we got the awkward, rebellious teenager dragon at the end of last season, right? That's what Glaurung was was going through that uh, that um, that stage. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. You're right. Stephen H says that Hagrid, of course, would think that was cute. Uh, in fact, yes, uh, sort of like the combination between you yeah, know Norbert and the blast-ended Scroots, I suppose. But um, uh, <laughs> all rolled into one. Um, yeah. So okay. Um, I, I, oh, I agree, Florian. We should have different kinds of dragons. We'll think about this later because it's not time to think about the fall of Gondolin in, in full yet. Um, but I definitely think that when by the time we get the brood of Glaurung, um, when they are revealed at the assault on Gondolin, there should be differences. They shouldn't be like Glaurung. Um, 
uh, there should be some innovations. Not wings yet, right? We're not to wings yet, but that's the next stage, right? We're getting there, um, and uh, I think that we can uh, that we can find some fun ways to show that. Um, okay, um, so so yeah, I don't really want to. I don't even want to hint at dragon. I don't want to hint at dragon breeding. None of that. Um, if we want to show, Gla- we've revealed Glaurung. Everybody knows he exists. Um, but again, I'm thinking we only show Sauron and company. Um, you know, Sauron, Sauron and his and his and his posse, right? Um, and we don't show Gothmog. We don't show Glaurung, and we don't even show Morgoth for the whole season until Whammo, right? Until the uh, the unleashing of the Dagor Bragalach. Um, uh, we can hint at other things that we want to uh, to hint. Um, Nick has says, so Glaurung's appearance from last season will remain a mystery. Um, well, first of all, Nick, the easiest thing to do about that is to have the elves debating it. I mean, we're going to have to have the elves debating about what to do and them discussing what the significance was of that you know, monstrous creature that broke out of, uh, of Angband. Um, that's going to come up in their debates, right? Um, so they're going to certainly be speculating on what was that thing. Um, the one thing which almost nobody should say, right? The thing, they're not going to realize that that thing wasn't full grown, <laughs> right? That that was only teenage rebellious Glaurung, um, rather than, because it's going to be, I mean, this is a formidable weapon, right? Um, And they're going to recognize it as a formidable weapon. And those who are erring on the side of confidence um, in the leaguer are going to respond by saying, yeah, but, you know, Fingen handled it. It's fine, right? Um, Yes, it was scary. Yes, it's kind of a big deal. But now we know what to expect uh, and we know how to take it. Um, you know, Fingen has shown us the way, so we can carry on doing it that way, and um, and we'll see, uh, we'll see, we'll see what happens. Um, uh, so they would not suspect that he was not full grown. In fact, if we want to let that slip, we could let it slip um, in a conversation between Sauron and Thorngwethel. Right? They could talk about. They could allude to Glaurung. Again, he's not a secret anymore. They could allude to Glaurung, and and one of them could say, you know, could talk about how Glaurung almost blew it because uh, he, you know, he broke out too early. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, I, I agree. If uh, so, that you know, the question here is: if Sauron is doing things uh, that would have made the Dagor Bragalak more effective, could we have him foreshadow his own war plan? Once we take this and this and this, then we can take this and this, and then Beleriand is ours. Just before we see the assault, skipping all the initial steps. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, we don't, you know we can time that how we want. We, you know, he doesn't have to lay it all out and point to spots on the map like Faramir did in the Lord of the Rings films, um, but. Uh, we can, um, or we could do it that way if we wanted to, um, but um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it would be exactly Michael an exhibit in Sauron's complaints, right? Um, Sauron and uh, um, Sauron and Thuringwethel 
would basically the reason they're acting so independently. I mean, remember, one of the things I think would be fun to show is some some space between Morgoth and Sauron, some some cooling between the two of them and Sauron's uh, a little bit of erosion of Sauron's confidence in Morgoth, even not, you know, massively. He's not defecting yet. He's not planning any coups or anything like that, but he um, he's he's lost a little, certainly lost some of the awe that he had back in season one about Morgoth. Didn't we, didn't we kind of start that process already yes. in a previous season where he's kind of like second guessing or, you know, mildly critical of what Morgoth's doing? Yeah, it, it, it started with the orc project right when morgoth came right, back and right, right, and, right, right. and yep. you know yeah exactly yep. so we we continue following that up so we have you know an opportunity right. there for him to be talking to his lieutenants and saying like okay team um this is on us right um we're the brains of this operation at this point so let's make a plan to 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 make this work out right and so they you know they hatch their plans um and in the context of this um, in the context, exactly as Marie says, Morgoth keeps stomping on Sauron's projects, and this will be the last example of that, right? The Dagor Bragalach itself is the final example of Morgoth stamping all over uh, Sauron's delicate plans, right? Um, and uh, so, yeah, so he calls his team together and he's like, okay, team, it's up to us. Um, and, and he will point to, like, Glaurung you know, almost blew it up there and now they know about him. So we've got to take, uh, you know, he's not going to be a surprise anymore. So now we've got to take some action. Um, uh, anyway, so, um, yeah, Stephen, I agree. Stephen cover says maybe he's hoping that the success will impress Morgoth and make Morgoth follow these types of plans more often, which just makes him more frustrated when Morgoth considers this a success and ignores Sauron's advice. Um, yes, yes. Um, Morgoth is sort of increasingly becoming more of a blunt instrument. That's kind of the dynamic between the two of them. Uh, Sauron is more subtle than Morgoth is um, at this point because of the, the state that Morgoth is in his in the place where he is in his decline. Um, so, so we can easily bring up the question of like, a, you know, um, I mean, in fact, it would be kind of you know, I think it would be hokey, but it would be kind of fun to cut straight from one to the other, right? To cut straight from the Elvish Council of War, you know, saying like, well, fortunately we handled that, uh, you know, that monster. So, you know, we know what to do if he comes back and then cut to Sauron being like, um, they will have no idea what to do when when, when fully grown Glaurung is unleashed on them, right? Um, uh, you know, it, it, it would, um, uh, you know, we, we can, we can, we can show that. Um, uh, so that that's called a Gilligan cut, is it, Nick? Yeah, exactly. Something like that. Um, and I think anything that we can do with the bad guys that makes them think of Gilligan's Island is all to the good, really. That's, I think, just pretty much what we usually want to be going for. Uh, <laughs> we could have Morgoth call Sauron little buddy. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what could be better? I mean, seriously, what could be better? Um... Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so, um, cause we're all about not tearing down the villains and making them less scary. So and it's just clearly how best to accomplish that. Um, 
Okay, so, um, but again, I think I think it still works if we just if we have just Sauron doing it. Obviously, we don't want to go too far in the other direction. Sauron can't be bad mouthing Morgoth behind his back. He still fears Morgoth. He still respects Morgoth. Morgoth is still strong. Is still immensely stronger than he Sauron is, right? So there's no question of who's the boss. There's no, you know, and they will speak of Morgoth only with fear and reverence still, and yet with less respect than they used to, right? Um, They don't trust Morgoth to know best. They don't trust Morgoth to have the best plans. They are going to make plans. And an unstated thing, like I think something that should never go, never be addressed among them is... Why are we making these plans on our own without either consulting or informing Morgoth of these plans, right? Um, And because the answer that they don't want to say is because they don't trust him. Um, Because they think he's going to screw it up. And he's going to screw it up, right? The Dagor Bragalach will, in fact, be Morgoth screwing it up. Um, uh, So... um, yeah, yeah. Nick, I agree. Sauron might start to work against Morgoth more directly after his duel, but not before that. Yes, Sauron, in his own stronghold, right, um, uh, in Tauron Garhoth, after the duel, Morgoth's duel with Fingolfin, is going to be Sauron in an interesting place, won't it? Right. Um, not yet in a not in not not yet in rebellion. Right. Not ne- not yet in you know secession or something like that. But this would be Sauron again distancing distancing himself more, taking the the opportunity of the tactical situation to move out. Right. He's going to get his own place um, next season. And Nick, the fact that that comes after Morgoth is publicly shamed. Um, and undermined by Fingolfin, that seems like a big deal. That seems like not a coincidence. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yep, Karita, I agree. It would be fairly easy for them to convince themselves that the boss is busy and he, they, they better not waste his time with these lower-level chats. Uh, they might They might say things like that, right? So that, you know... Uh, there is complete deniability. They may even be in a kind of denial about the, you know, failings of Morgoth, right? Um, Because keep in mind, no one's ever seen this before. The decline that Morgoth is going through has never happened. Um, Sauron is going to be disturbed because he didn't know this was possible. Um, The way that... Now, like, Morgoth has done things that he didn't imagine, um, uh, you know, the spell of Bono was dread, for instance. But that doesn't change the fact that he didn't realize, Sauron did not realize, that, um, uh, that, that, that you could go like that, right? That, that you could sap yourself and diminish yourself. Um, you know, when he remembers back to their honeymoon period in season one, uh, you know, um, he never imagined that Morgoth could go down this path, could go in this direction. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. So, um, 
Yeah, in countless millennia, it hasn't happened. Exactly. The idea of just, you know, one of the Valar declining like this. I mean, it wasn't on anybody's radar screen. Um, uh, Now, let's see. Um, As Karita says, it's so hard when a relationship starts to break up. You start keeping secrets without meaning to, lying to yourself about how how much you really trust them. Exactly, Karita. That's exactly, exactly. We show the stages, right? Uh, he's He's not yet taking any irrevocable steps, right? But he's starting to look out for a landing spot. Again, I see him doing this in Tolan Garhoth, right? He's starting to imagine setting up, you know, uh, you know, in a little place of his own with a maybe a little bit of garden of his own, right, someday. To, I mean, he, he's, to, you know, if I could, you know, maybe if I could set up in like a nice evil tower, maybe in the middle of a big evil forest, right? That'd be nice, you know, far away from things, uh, you know, off the beaten path. Um, um, yeah, exactly. As Karita says, he hasn't started socking money away, but he's spending a lot of time looking at Zillow. Right? <laughs> yes, that's the stage that Sauron is at. Uh, you've got it exactly, Karita. You've got it exactly. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Nick, exactly. Clearly, the way around this problem is to put your power into a single inanimate object and wear it on your person. Uh, that's going to be a much better method. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. But Florian asks a really good question. What? Sauron should have some role in the Dagor Bragalak, certainly, right? As Florian points out, Sauron is still, at the very least, one of... Morgoth's chief lieutenants, so you know, he's not going to be left entirely out of the dagger. You know, he's not going to... Um, Morgoth is not going to fail to deploy him as an asset during the during the Dagor Bragalak. I mean, he's he's, uh, you know... The Dagor Bragalak is Morgoth pushing all his chips to the center of the table, right? Um, so, um, I think um, uh, yeah, I think that um, we. Yeah, how would he do it? What would he do? Here's my biggest problem with this element, Florian. I don't want to show it. I don't want to have a scene where Sauron, like Morgoth, summons Sauron. And gives him his marching orders, and and um, Sauron is like, but but sir, you know, like I don't I don't I don't I don't want to do that scene, right? Um, but I agree with you that it seems implausible that Sauron is going to be as surprised as the elves when the Dagor Bragalot comes. He's going to know, right? He's going to know it's coming, and he's going to have some role in supporting it. Um, so what should that be? Uh, Well, let's hold on to that for a minute. Let's finish looking at the plots that Sauron is pushing forward, and then let's come back and answer that question after we sort that stuff a little bit more clearly. Um, uh, 
let's pause for a second and talk about Huan. Um, well, no. No, it's not. Um, oh, sorry, I forgot my cast of characters slide. Uh, but let's actually review the cast of characters here um, so as we can think about how we're going to deploy things. So we've got, you know, Morgoth. I think Morgoth doesn't show up until the end. Uh, we, we should sh- show him in the Dagor. He's not going to fight in the Dagor Bragalak, but we should show him in the Dagor Bragalak. Um, and, of course, he's going to come out and fight with Fingolfin at the end, shockingly. Um, Sauron doing lots of things, right? The catch-and-release program and the creating dissension between men and elves. That's Those clearly, I think, are his biggest initiatives that we need to show him pursuing uh, during um, during this season. Thorin Gwethel. I think that Thorin Gwethel, she is, she is Sauron's number one. Um, we, that's how we've had her. She, you know, he has a bunch of lieutenants, but Thorin Gwethel, uh, is his right hand bat. Uh, so she's his bat man, as it were. Um, uh, bat woman, I guess, technically. Uh, but anyway, uh, she's just his bat, I guess. Uh, 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 but anyhow, so she's working for Sauron and she's spying, but I, you know, maybe more than spying, but spying, you know, espionage has been her primary thing, um, so far. So we'll see, uh, what we want her, how we, what exact role we want her playing in his two plans, the catch and release program, uh, and the fake unlock plan, um, Tavildo, Tavildo's going to die in this season. He's the only big lieutenant who's going to be dying in this season, um, who will be killed by Haleth, as we decided. Um, uh, people had suggested maybe a final fling for Tavildo before, you know, to give him some final action before uh, he's slain. Um, I like the idea. Someone, I believe, made the suggestion um, that. Um, um, Someone had made the suggestion that Tavildo hunts Aravel and her escort um, when she leaves Gondolin, and I really like that idea. Um, first of all, I like one reason I like that idea is I would rather not deploy Shelob and the giant spiders. Um, we could deploy Shelob and the giant spiders when it comes to um, uh, Aravel, but I think we we bring the giant spiders into play. During the journey of uh, of Haleth herself and her people, um, but the reason I don't like the giant spiders being uh, attacking Arthel and being the cause for the scattering of Arthel's company is that brings it a little bit close to this. Baron is going to be encountering the spiders um, on his journey to Doriath, and I would kind of like that to be a little bit special. So if we establish the incredible. Um, the terror of the spiders. We've already shown them attacking Doriath, and that was pretty scary, but when last we saw the spiders, they were all scurrying for cover like cockroaches when Melian was unleashing the girdle, right? Um, So, uh, uh, Stephen H., that was your idea. Great. Yeah, I know. I really like that idea, Stephen H. So, um, again, so that was was the last we saw the spiders, which was not a really impressive ending note for Shelob and company. But we can reestablish their, the terror of Shelob and company through the people of Haleth, right? They can be haunting and, like, you know, 
picking off the people of Haleth as they go through. And so establishing them, this gives us, of course, a direct precedent of them preying upon men uh, so that um, seeing how what a hard time the whole gathered people of Haleth have with the giant spiders um, to have Baron alone and solitary wandering through the giant spiders' home territories um, successfully um, and resisting them, that's pretty cool, I think. Uh, so, um, we don't want to overplay them, um, but, but anyway, so to me, it seems like a perfect opportunity. Let's, uh, let's bring Tavildo, uh, into play in the Arathel situation, um, and have him and his forces be, this also has him moving in the right direction, right? So if he's up in that area, um, then bringing him down a little bit later to, um, uh, to, you know, the, the, the forest of Brethil seems, um, you know, uh, a clear thing that we can do. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, and also if, if he's going through that route, if he's there, um, waylaying Arathel, then he's going before Haleth, right? So we have him already sort of lying in wait there. Uh, he's already, at the place where we know Haleth is going, so there's a, a you know a sort of collision course there. Um, I think that that works. Um, but um, anyway, okay. Um, so now, Rihanna, here's there's another reason why I think that again if we have to be careful if we overexpose the spiders, we're going to make them less terrifying instead of more. And here's the other reason why I kind of don't like having the spiders be the one who scatter Aradel's company, um, and that is that. We we don't want to kill off too many of the Gondolindrim uh, there, um, uh, because first of all they're important, um, and so the 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 scattering of Arthel's is going to be a scattering. There aren't going to be that many casualties in those attacks. Um, what is going to happen though is that Arthel will be separated from the rest of them, and then will intrepidly decide to go on on her own. Um, so. That can be accomplished in a sense by a more minor villain, um, because they don't have we don't we don't want to bring in somebody who's going to be striking down Glorfindel, um, or threatening to strike down Glorfindel, um, uh, and if so, ultimately the attack which is going to separate Arathel from the rest of her companions is going to be ultimately a failed attack. They're not going to kill that many elves. Um, um, it's going to have the one effect of separating them, but it's not, it's not going to be really a very successful attack. So again, that would seem to me to potentially to further undermine the spiders a little bit. Whereas when the spiders are preying on the people of Haleth, they can be quite successful at that. Um, there's nothing the people of Haleth can do except run from them. Um, so, um, okay. Um, uh, Okay. Draugluin. We don't know what Draugluin is up to. He's with Sauron. Here I think we've got to bring in Huan's prophecy. Um, yeah, here we have to bring in Huan's prophecy. We'll come back to that when we talk about Huan. Gothmog. I, I don't want Goth. I, I want Gothmog to be off stage until the Dagor Bragalach. Um, uh... Yeah, that's his big moment. 
uh, Glaurung we've talked about, Shilob I just was talking about. Um, Bulldog. Bulldog, you may remember, Bulldog is a pretty minor character, the most minor character among all of the villains that we have come up with. Um, uh, Bulldog is this sort of demigod of the orcs, right? He's the sort of this, the, the evil spirit who's been sort of embodied as the, the you know, the, the sort of uber-orc general. Um, uh, so, yes, Marie uh, and Stephen H., my suggestion is that Bulldog leads the attack on the stockade. It's Bulldog's attack, which uh, ends up killing... Haleth's father and brother. Um, now, this is not coordinated with Sauron. Bulldog doesn't work for Sauron. Um, and I think that works out well here. Sauron would not support the attack on the stockade. The effect of the attack on the stockade is... Sauron would think that this attack on the stockade is stupid. It's stupid for two reasons. It's stupid, A, because they don't want to slaughter the men. He wants to subvert the men. Um, a, like What's going to be worse for the bad guys? A whole bunch of human corpses? Or a whole bunch of humans up in arms attacking the elves from behind? That sounds better, doesn't it? Um, and that's what he's going for. He is trying to convince the human to set the humans against the elves and give the elves another front to be fighting on. Um, to, you know, fighting to the north and to the south of their little leaguer. So he is not going... And But not only is just depopulating Estelad not his plan, um, but of course the only effect that it might have, and indeed the effect that it does have, in a sense, uh, for Haleth, is creating solidarity, right? You know, where are my father and my brother? There is no chance that Haleth is going to join with the enemy. There is no chance that she is going to listen to the slayers of her kin. Um she now one of the big chunks of the humans are unsubvertible by the enemy, right? That is a waste of resources as far as Sauron is concerned. So he would not um, uh, support the attack on the stockade. Um, so the fact that so that that's another reason why I want Bulldog to be leading it. Um, uh, I also now okay so. Whose initiative is this? I, um, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Michael makes a wonderful point about this. Um, that it, that it's a really important distinction to make early on. Um, that Sauron's goal is not annihilation. Sauron's goal is domination. Right? He doesn't want to destroy the men. He wants to rule them. He wants to bring them under his influence and manipulate them into doing what he wants them to do. Manipulate first, uh, moving towards full domination if we can get there, right? That's uh, exactly, um, uh, yeah, that's exactly what, what, what he wants. Even the result of some of them deciding to go off across the mountains, that's like a plus minus for Sauron, right? I mean, it's better than them staying and becoming allies to the elves, but it's worse than them fighting against the elves, right? Um yeah, so Bulldog, who sends him? 
Why is he doing what he's doing? I don't know. Um, I don't think we have to show that. I don't think we have to show that. I think that can be the first hint of, again, Sauron is making plans, but Sauron's plans are not in sync with the plans of Morgoth. Right. Um, the, this is, in a sense, a foretaste. Here's Sauron hatching his devious plans and then an orc assault on Estelot. Seriously. That's what, that's what we're doing now? We're just going to do an orc assault. Um, uh, you know, that's he's going to be not just angry about that, but disdainful about that, right? Uh, again, it's just, it's just, it's foolish. It's dumb. Um, and it foreshadows the Dagor Bragalock itself, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, so yeah, Rihanna and I agree. We don't, I think we don't show who initiates the attack on the stockade at all. Um, if we want to make any reference to it, um, I think it might be good for us because it's going to seem contradictory. Sauron's plans with the men are going to be obviously at odds with and indeed undermined by uh, the attack of Bulldog, you know, the attack of the orcs uh, on the stockade. So um, I think that uh, it, it would not be a bad idea for us to at least make it clear from Sauron's conversations with Thorin Gwethil that this was not his plan. Right, that he he did not authorize the attack on the stockade, but we don't, Rihanna, have to say anything positive about it. Who did do it? What was what? How did that fit into their general strategy? Um, uh, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, bulldog. My biggest question is how. How does Bulldog get to the encampment? How does he get to the stockade? I, I mean, is Bulldog just like... Um, is he just like a blockade runner, essentially? Is he like a blockade running army? Um, I just sneaked through Maglor's Gap before Maglor noticed, right? I mean, is that is that uh, is that the plan? Um you know, I, uh, we have been trying to establish the sons of Feanor as the greatest military power of the good guys in Beleriand. Remember, we were even introducing this in season four about how they even kind of look down on the other Noldor, right? Who just don't have it going on in the military, uh, you know, in the, the military architecture and personnel department, right? Um, so it, it would be a pretty big black eye to the sons of Feanor if an entire orc army just sneaks through unchallenged, right, through their part of the... What kind of a leaguer are you guys running up there, right, that you let an orc army through? Um, to be totally honest... This is a this is a loose end Tolkien never explains in the book. I've never understood. I've never understood how the Orc army gets there. Um, we could make it go around the Arid Luin, Rhiannon. I mean, we could make them cross the mountains, come down, cross the mountains again, 
and go there. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, right, good, yes, exactly, yeah. Um, they would have to be un, un, they'd still have to be unespied in doing it. And we could make that work. We could make that work. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, the, the loose end that I mean is like, like how, I still don't see how this like sort of fits the plan. There's, there's, there's not a real obvious, like the, the kind of thinking that we're doing, the kind of strategizing that we're doing on behalf of the, the bad guys is done in less detail, uh, in the Silmarillion. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, ooh, Nick says them crossing the mountains and using the dwarf road for their attack. Uh, Nick points out that this brings the politics of the Noldor dwarf relationship into question, right? It'd be a little bit of uh, maybe strong words in that direction, right? What use are you? What use are you? Um, I would have no problem, Nick, moving the stockade north. Again, we've... If the impulse of the Haladin is already a little bit towards isolationism, if they're already a kind of a remote suburb, you know, they're not really living with the rest of the, uh, uh, you know, the rest of the folks at Estelad, that seems to me perfectly in keeping uh, with uh, their peoples. Um, yeah, so so I'm fine with moving the stockade a little bit north there to make that simpler. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, Florian says in the book it seems like the Arid Ingrin are traversable for orc armies, but not for others. Yeah, again, it's, it's a little... Um, as I said, I've never been wholly satisfied with the story of the stockade battle. Um, uh, in the book. Um, but, uh, but anyway, it's fine. They come across the mountains. Uh, here we go, Nick. Dwarf plot, right? Doesn't have to be a big dwarf plot. The dwarf plot can be our E plot or whatever, you know, in the season. But, um, but it does give opportunity maybe to touch base with the dwarves a couple times there, um, in the context of the, you know, the orcs crossing over the mountains. Or under, yes. They could come under the mountains. Why wouldn't they? Um, or why wouldn't they want to? Or why wouldn't they try? Absolutely. That would be worse. And therefore more fun. Um, so, because that would begin to look like an actual betrayal by the dwarves. Um, which it isn't. But they're going to have to do some fast talking to explain that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I like that. So, we're not going to show on screen who gives the marching orders to Bulldog. But, I think it's Gothmog. I think it's Gothmog. I think that in our version of the bad guys, what makes most sense to me is Gothmog hears the stories about the, uh, the men arriving in Beleriand. And... Gothmog is the leader of the faction of folks who says, who disregards men, who doesn't take men that seriously. We know this is another problem that Morgoth has had, 
right? Um, Morgoth underestimated the military impact of the arrival of men in Beleriand. It's another, it's another um, explicit factor. Um, and uh, um, Gothmog, I think, leads the way in the underestimating of men. Um, they've heard of men. Sauron is like, this is kind of a big deal. This could be a problem, but I think it's also an opportunity. Again, we don't show this conversation with Morgoth, but Sauron is like, this is a problem, but every problem is an opportunity in disguise, right? So this is Sauron's approach, and he's like, I think we can turn the men against them, and that's going to be great. And Gothmog is like, what are you bloviating about? Like, this is nothing. Um, These little mortal creatures, whatever, like, let's just stomp on them and send them scurrying. There's no point in investing thought in them. They're not gonna. Uh, they're 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 not gonna add significantly. Like okay, so we've got the Noldor. Oh, but look out! They have little pet humans now. Like so what? Right? So you know, so they got a hamster. Like it's 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 it, it doesn't move the needle, uh, says Gothmog. Um, much less uh, are your harebrained plans to turn them into you know uh, an army against the Noldor. Like really, how's that gonna pan out? What what are they gonna be able to do um, uh, against? Um, against the Noldor for crying out loud. Um, so, um, uh, so, yeah, so this is Gothmog's thought, right? So Gothmog is going to prove his point. He's going to prove his point, and he's going by sending Bulldog out. He's going to send Bulldog out with not even a full army, right? He's just going to send him out with a, you know, a, a you know, a, a significant squadron of orcs. Uh, and he's going to, he's going to, he says to Goldog, Bulldog, go, go, just go, go crush them and chase them around in circles for a while. Right. Um, thinking that he's going to prove that they're not, a, you know, they're not a big deal. Um, and it doesn't go as well as he planned, um, you know, but he does accomplish something. I mean, he does take them by surprise and he does slay a bunch of the men, including um, uh, Halleth's father and brother. Um but again, but this is why, and, but and this is why Sauron is like livid, right? That this is like you know again not only a really foolish thing uh, for him to do, um, but um, uh, but he's also you know he's also uh, fouling up his plans there. Um, so that rationale works for me. Again, we show none of those conversations happening. Um, we leave all of this implied, or if anything, we have. Sauron and Thurin Gwethel say enough that viewers can kind of read between the lines and get the sense of what's happening, um, you know, behind the scenes during the, uh, uh, during the evil board meetings, uh, Marie. Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. Um, let's get to the catch and release program. Uh, whoop, uh, not who on problem. We're not going to get to who on tonight, but let's talk a little bit about the catch and release program. Um, we're going to have an escape from Angband. Um, Anil has been taken prisoner. Rogren has been taken prisoner. Um, they both need to get out. Um, we have three. We're going to have three major named characters as prisoners during this season: Diriel, Anil. And Rogren, um, we um, we need to it makes sense to have their breakout be one single story um, rather than 
having them escaping, that is, Rogren and Anile escaping separately. Um, okay. What are the things that we need to accomplish in the escape? What we need to accomplish? We need to accomplish that Rogren is awesome and kicks enormous amounts of butt. That's one of the things that we need to accomplish in the escape. We also need to accomplish that Dirio cannot escape, right? Dirio's <clears throat> failure to escape is one of the big points as well. Um, and Anil's Anil's role is not necessarily established in the escape. Um, Well, okay, before I talk about the mechanism there, though, let's think about the larger question. Um, uh, yeah. Um, okay. We could have Stephen. So Stephen H was making suggestions about having a um, Diriel helps Rogren and some others escape. Rogren sort of leads, the, you know, heroically leads the escape, and Anil kind of silently joins the group. I don't know that we have to go that far out of our way to make Anil look weird, right? I, why can't he just be one of the escapees, right? Um, why can't he just be one of them? Um, uh, but hang on a second. Let's let's back up. First, let's answer the big picture question. What is the plan with Anil? What's going to happen? Um, he's a mole. Um, he is the fourth scenario, the one who is put under a whammy. He doesn't actively betray them, as Evelos was brought to do under the spell of Bottomless Dread in the last season. Um, he doesn't go quite that far or not quite in that direction, um, but he does betray them. He does, um, you know, serve as a spy, as a mole uh, for uh, for the enemy. Um, how? What? What does he reveal? What does he reveal? The mechanism, the how is not so hard. The how is not so hard because we've got Thurin Gwethel, right? We have a we we have a covert agent available. Uh, so, you know, transmitting his intelligence to the enemy is not hard, right? You know, that's as easy as a little bat told me. Um, but what what is he betraying? Um. Ooh, yes, Nick. Yes, I like that. It doesn't pay off immediately, but it's okay. We can hold on to it maybe for a while. Um, uh, Maria's suggesting if there's a plan to rescue more prisoners, he can reveal that plan. Yes. Um, okay, I have two ideas. One is Nick's suggestion, which I quite like, but again, timing-wise, it doesn't 
fold into season five stuff as well. Um, that he is instrumental in the taking of Minas Tirith. Um, so he's able to betray, you know, weakness in the defenses. Uh, he's able to tell Sauron how to get in, essentially, uh, and help him do that. Um, I, uh, um, I like that idea, but again, it's a protracted payoff on that. Um, and we might want to, we might want to have him working more here. Um, I mean, I like that. Um, I like that. Um, it's also possible that he could do both just because he's serving as a mole for some other season five related purpose. Um, during this season doesn't mean he has to be, but you know, he has to, you know, be discovered yet. He can remain a mole, uh, into season six, perhaps. Um, but, um, uh, yeah. Um, Nick is thinking, um, that, uh, if he is able to prevent, so Fingolfin, when the battle begins, Fingolfin is going to try to get to help, um, Angrod and Ignor, um, but he's not going to be able to get to them. Um, Anil could perhaps do something that leads to the prevention of Fingolfin being able to combine, um, with, um, uh, with them. So as Nick says, he's kind of preventing the Dagor Aglareb from happening again, right? Um, preventing them from, uh, getting, get, gathering together and coming to each other's aid. Um, uh, yeah, um, that, that's, that is a possibility. I kind of like the idea. So here, here's another thought that I was having. The elves are making plans, right? The elves are making plans about what they want. Remember, they're debating, should we attack? Should we not attack? Right? Those are, those are questions that they have. So, um, and we know there's going to be a plan. Um, we know that they're formulating a plan. Um, Fingolfin is even formulating his plan, you know, his attack plan. Um, what if the... Mm, okay, sorry, I just thought of a downside to this plan. I was going to say, what if Anil betrays what the elven kings are planning and that's one that's one of the things that precipitates the slightly premature Dagor Bragalak, right? That like you know, Morgoth saying, No, we don't want to wait for them to act. We want to take them while they're still unprepared. Um so let's let's go now. Knowing that they're planning this, let's go now. Um so that's um that's possible. Marie, I agree. Fingolfin is trying to plan an attack on Angband, and Anil has been in Angband, so they would certainly talk. Absolutely, they would. Um, uh, yeah, Florian, I agree. If we want it to be different, <clears throat> Ethelos was interfering with... She was attempting to prevent the Dagor Aglareb, right? Um, so having Anil succeeding in doing what uh, uh, Ethelos... It, it, doesn't, it doesn't create a different role, really, uh, fundamentally different. I agree with Florian there. Um, so, yeah, having the downside that I thought of to this plan is, um, 
if they if Sauron's catch and release program is the thing is if like the intelligence gained through his catch and release program is what brings about the premature dagger, then it's kind of his fault, right? And it is a result of his plans coming to fruition potentially, right? Uh, and that that undermines the other point that we're trying to make. So that's the thing that I that I don't like about it. Um, uh, so. Um, I, it's not an insuperable obstacle, but it's it's just a thing I, I don't love about it. Um, I don't know if this is too anticlimactic, but we could have Anil's information lead to nothing in season five. That is... We can show that he, especially if we're going to kind of play a longer game with Anil, if we're going to string Anil out through into season six before he's discovered, um, then all we're doing is setting things up, right? Showing that there is a mole, creating unease, right? Letting people perhaps wonder and speculate if the information that Anil revealed helped to to lead in some way um, to... um, uh, to the uh, uh, to the you know dagger bragalog you know to the to the disaster that falls at the end of the season, but not state it explicitly, right? So we show him betraying information. We show Thorin Gwethel getting information from him and taking it back to Sauron, but we don't know exactly what's acted on, and we're not shown because it's not critical yet. The critical payoff for the Anil story is going to be the taking of Minas Tirith. Um, and that's not going to happen yet. Um, and the mole won't be revealed yet. Now, Rhiannon asked a very sensible question that we need to be thinking about. She says, when do we want to show escaped prisoners from Angband not being trusted because of Anil, right? Um, which we're told happens, right? That when some of the, uh, some of the elves escape indeed, you know, they're not, they're, they're distrusted and cast out by their family members because they believe them to be spies from Angband. Um, that's going to follow from People are already a little bit spooked because of Edelos, um, but that seemed to be a different kind of situation. But when Anil's uh, betrayal is discovered, um, and especially his, in, even in the context of his own repentance of it, right, um, his own shock and repentance of it is going to be even creepier because they're like, great. So it's not like he turned against us. You know, he didn't even know what he was doing. So it could be anybody, right? It doesn't matter if they seem like themselves. It doesn't matter if, even if we have every reason to believe that they generally support us, you know, that they generally want, they're generally on our side, we still can't trust them, right? They could still be moles. Um, so, and and Rihanna and I, to me, that's that's plenty of time. Um, after the taking of Minas Tirith, because the, 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 the moments when... We want to highlight escaped prisoners not being welcomed when they come home. I think we want that to happen in the years between the Dagor Bragalach and the Nirnaith or Noidiad, or even in the time after the Nirnaith or Noidiad, any time in there. Setting up Gwyndor is what we want to be doing there. Um, so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, 
So yeah, Nick, exactly. After Minas Tirith is when it becomes obvious that this can happen. Yes, exactly. Um, so the goals for Anil can be various. Again, he doesn't have to have a, a plot altering revelation uh, to the bad guys in this season. It's just establishing the mere fact of what is happening and how it's happening. The fact that it's he seems he's completely unconscious of it. Um, I would kind of like to do. I would like to indulge just a shade, just a touch of Dracula with Thorin Gwethel. I kind of want to show her looming over him while he's asleep, right? Her coming to him in the night while he is asleep in his bed. Um, and like, extra, not like drinking his blood, but like drawing the memories from his mind, especially remember elvish memories, right? Dreams and elvish memories. Um, she can, she can, you know, there is some mechanism that enables her to take them from him, to take his memories from him. Um, and memories, how crucial is that to elves, right? Um, so I think that would be kind of interesting. Um, the, well, the reason why they need Anna, she can't do that to just anybody, right? There, there, there has to be a complicity here, but it's not. Again, the reason I'm thinking about Dracula, I'm thinking about Lucy Westenra in Dracula. For those of you who don't know the book, I won't belabor the point because I don't have time to go into a whole Dracula text, not Dracula movie explanation. Um, but in in the book of Dracula, right after Dracula comes to England for the first time, the first person he victimizes is the uh, beautiful and not overly intelligent Lucy Westenra. Um, uh, and she is in a really interesting state of both simultaneously resisting, like remaining herself, remaining free, and yet also voluntarily obeying his commands. And, you know, she, she lets him in. She opens the windows and lets him in, but she doesn't remember doing it. Um, she does it while sleepwalking. Um, and so it's like kind of her will and kind of not her will. Um, it's because of the, you know, the hold that he gains over her. Um, so I'm not, I'm not, again, I'm not wanting to overdo it with the vampire thing. Um, but, uh, you know, I, have, we, I, we've, I haven't indulged any vampire stuff with Thorin Gwethel. Um, but in my mind, the Lucy Westenra paradigm uh, from Dracula seems to me to map pretty well onto the psychological or spiritual state into which Anil has been placed. Um, like Lucy Westenra, he was victimized, right? She just was sleepwalking and he... Dracula bitter, um, and through his bite of her gained a hold on her just as Anil has been, he's been whammied, right? Not the full whammy that Ethelos, that Ethelos got, but he's been whammied. Um, and it's not, that's not his fault, right? And yet he's complicit, but he's not consciously complicit. Um, he doesn't in his waking life do anything. He, he, he doesn't remember anything. He doesn't remember doing anything. And yet because this hold is on him, he is like he opens his dreams to her, right? She can't just do it to any elf. Um, the elf has to do it, but that's the effect of this more subtle version 
of the, you know, the spell of pretty deep but not quite bottomless dread that has been placed upon Edelos. Exactly. It's the spell of not so bottomless dread. That's exactly it, Murray. Um, that's what I'm thinking. Because he's going to, unlike Edelos, he's going to get better. Right? I mean, he's going to live, you know, a tormented life of self-reproach and, isol- and self-imposed exile and isolation after this until he raises the young Tuor. Um, but you know he's gonna he's gonna recover, and so I he can't he can't go all the way. I mean, Edelos, there was no coming back from that, right? Um, and again, but you see the opportunity here, right? Sauron took notes when Morgoth placed the spell of bottomless dread on Edelos, and that was impressive. But Sauron can do better. First of all, he's not as strong as Morgoth, so he can't quite do as much. But also. You know, Sauron is, he believes in working smarter, not harder, right? So he has a more devious plan for uh, domination of of Anil, which is not going to lead to these, you know, sort of breaks, you know, these sort of psychotic breaks that, uh, um, you know, so where, where um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so that's that's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm thinking uh, about what happens with On Island. Again, his information doesn't need to lead to results during this season. We just need to establish what's happening with him. Um, and I don't know about you, but I just love the image of Thor and Gwethel just kind of looming over him, like flying up to his window, uh, taking her own form. And this is, you know, it's not, it's not a sexual thing, right? There should not be, she shouldn't be slinky in doing this, right? This is not, it should not be an erotic scene. And I emphasize that because, of course, it usually is in Dracula, and especially in Dracula adaptations, right? Uh, I mean, in the book, Dracula, it is, the the, the, the Lucy Westenra thing has a heavy erotic overtone. And I'm not suggesting that. I don't, I don't want there to be any mistakes about that. I'm not suggesting that. I, I, I think that we have, um, um, we have avoided that with Thorin Gwethel, and I think that that's a good thing that we have avoided that with Thorin Gwethel. We have not made her, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of sexually predatory or anything, um, and I think that that's good. Um, but um, but 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 deeply creepy and very disturbing. Um, uh, what she's doing and that she's able to do it to him. You know that Sauron has has so dealt with Anil that she is able to do this to him. Um, and she can, she can explain it. He can explain it to her, right? Um, that she's going to be able to take, you know, to, uh, uh, to steal his very memories out of his head. And she's like, how do I do that? And he's like, oh, it's awesome, right? I have, uh, I have um, corrupted his will, so that he will open himself into you without even knowing it and without even remembering that he did it. Um, and thus enabling her to do what she does. Alternatively, we could have, we could have Sauron doing it himself. We could have Sauron showing up uh, in Anil's bedroom, and that would be even more Dracula-like, to be perfectly honest. Um, uh, but, um, uh, but I wouldn't mind deputing that to Thorin Gwethel, uh, both because she's, you know, the subterfuge person, she's the espionage person, uh, but also, again, it shows her importance to Sauron and his schemes, which is going to make her destruction the more crippling uh, for his ambitions next season. Um, 
Florian Sauron can be a vampire when he wants to, and indeed he does, right? We do see Sauron taking vampire form when he flies off bleeding uh, from his fight with Huon. Um, so, yep, that's going to happen. Um, anyway, okay. So, that's how I see the Anile stuff going down. Um, therefore, my thought is we don't want Anile to look shady at all, because not even he knows that he's shady. Um, I think he's just... Okay, but how does Sauron lay the not-so-bottomless-dread spell on him? Uh, It's got to be... He's got to come to him. Hmm. It's got to be in prison. He needs to be isolated. Anile needs to be isolated. And and I think it's low key. I think it's very low key. Um. We don't need to show Sauron doing it, Rian, and I agree Nick was thinking the same thing. Um, he could just reveal that it's been done after the escape. I agree. Um, part of me is imagining showing Anile asleep in a cell or on the floor of a tunnel, you know, where where he was mining, um, and Sauron just comes to him in the night, right? You know, so in the darkness, Sauron arrives, and... Um, does what he does to him while he's... So even Anil never knows that he's ever had an encounter with Sauron. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, Here's the really cool thing. Here's one of the things I like about that. One of the things I would like to establish with this new method, the not quite so over the top as uh, as uh, um, Ethelwas method, is the viewers. None of us will ever know who this has happened to, right? We see it happening with Anile. We see this spell being placed upon him. We see his will being corrupted in this way. We see memories being drawn off from him. Um, we will see him finally break through and learn the truth about what happened to, to, to realize the way that he's been exploited. Um, but no one else will see anything. And even he doesn't know and, or suspect until the end there. Which means anybody could be like this. Anybody could be betraying secrets to Sauron uh, next season, right? In the years to come, even. Um, even after Sauron himself is gone. Um, so, uh, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Nick is saying the conversation between Sauron and Throwing Grethel could even take place right in front of the spellbound Anile when it's revealed. Um, so, we could reveal this by having the two of them show up together to his you know, to, like, the bedroom of Anil, like, where he's staying in Fingon's Fortress. And, uh, um, uh, you know, 
Sauron shows Thoringwethel and explains to her right there um, uh, how it's done um, and what he's and what he's created, and can even imply this is this is the plan moving forward. Right by this means, um, you know, all of them will you know like we will have people working for us all over the place, and no one will ever know, and then we don't come back to it, right? And we never show them, right? How many people are working for him? We don't know. They don't know. Um, that could work. That could work. Um, having them have that conversation over the uh, supernaturally comatose body of Anil, because um, again, he's under he is under Sauron's domination. So Sauron keeps him from waking up and takes his dreams from him and shows Thorin Gwethel how to do it. Um, yeah, I like it. Uh, so, uh, Florian was asking, does uh, Thorin Gwethel have vampire teeth? Not in human form. No, when she's in, when she's, uh, when she's a biped, she does not have vampire teeth. Um, she has vampire teeth when she's a vampire bat, but not uh, when she's in human form, I think. Um, yeah. yeah. Marie, you're right. He will not awaken. Uh, huge Dracula vibes there. Yeah. No, I'm loving the, 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 the Dracula crossover there. Um, I think it's, it's too, um, it's too much fun after all the years I have spent trying to convince people not to think about Dracula when they read about Thuring Gwethel to undermine, uh, that through our own depiction, I think is fun. So I think that will be, that will be really cool. Um, but, um, okay, good. Let's see. Um, yeah, Nick, exactly. Uh, on an increasingly tired looking on aisle, uh, will be fun as Thorin Gwethel keeps stealing his dreams and he's, what's going to reveal it to him eventually. He is going to realize, I mean, he's going to be disturbed. His memories are being stolen from him. Like he's these memories are being corrupted and stolen, and this doesn't happen to elves. Right? Again, their relationship with memory is different than humans, uh, and so that's what he's going to notice first: is 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 gaps or disturbances. He's going to be he's going to he's going to feel it uh, happening, um, and um, uh, you know we'll um, we'll see how we play that. But that's it that's becoming a season six question. So I'm not going to worry about that now. Cause I do, I do think having him, we need some payoff from the on Isle experiment and Minas Tirith seems like the best place to do that. He can end up in Minas Tirith after, uh, the, uh, the Dagor Bragalach. So that would work. Um, okay. So as for the escape from Angband, the escape from Angband can be entirely heroic and without any, uh, hints that anything is wrong about it, right? Um, Anil can be one of those who escapes. Uh, Rogren can be the leader. He can be the hero of the escape, right? Their, um, their escape is blocked by, you know, he's the one who kills the guards in order to, um, uh, in order to, uh, in order to escape. And here I am like not able to stop myself imagining some of the rather gruesome ways uh, in which, uh, in which, uh, um, 
Frank Castle escaped from imprisonment during the Daredevil series on Netflix, uh, since, of course, we've cast that actor as Rogren. Um, but uh, I don't think it needs to be anything about metal shards embedded in his own flesh. I think he can escape uh, in other ways. Uh, but again, heroically, he's the one who takes out the guards. Um, now, the role of Dirio, and then we'll be done because we're already way over for tonight, Um I do think we, we do need to show Dirio, unless we're just going to show Dirio as being a completely like broken down drudge who no longer even thinks of escaping, which we could do, but I don't really want to do that. Um, uh, having her contribute to their escape, even though she cannot escape, um, but having her—I mean, I like that. I like that. I like it because you know, Dirio, Dirio is gonna she's gonna she's gonna die in Angband. Like, there's there's no. Um, you know, there's no happy ending to her story, but having her be, I mean, she's Kurofin's wife. So having her be, become heroic and even self-sacrificing, um, which, you know, makes her stand out and does bring her a kind of redemption, uh, you know, among the, uh, uh, among the Fanorians, you know, that's, um, uh, that's something I think would work really, would, would, I, I like. I don't want her to be. Um, um, I don't want her to be, you know, really gone over to the bad guys. Now there was some discussion, Marie. I think you were suggesting um, a, a really interesting idea that Diriel has been forced to take an oath. Um, her role in the attempted escape uh, with Evelos in the previous season um, was you know, was discovered. And so, uh, if she, um, um, uh, if she is compelled to swear. So the, so the, the suggestion was Dario's compelled to swear an oath that she will not escape, like an oath of, of loyalty to Morgoth, essentially like that, you know, she's gonna, that she will faithfully remain, uh, and uh, uh, and not escape Morgoth, but that she stretches the terms of this. So first of all, can I just say it is a little bit beautiful to have a Feanorian swearing this oath and then trying to work against the oath that she's sworn, right? Um, she can't just break it. Uh, it's binding on her, uh, as you say, Marie, and yet um, you know, uh, it's, yeah, well, see, Rihanna, there's, Rihanna's saying an oath under duress shouldn't be binding. Well, there's duress and then there's duress, right? Um, there's the kind of duress that Ethelwas was under, the full-blown whammy, I am overriding your brain. Um, that's one kind of duress. And certainly, uh, but... I remember somebody once told me that somebody who gets married in a shotgun wedding has had their free will abrogated. And I disagreed. I said, no, they don't. Uh, somebody who is marched into a, into a, a church uh, at shotgun point uh, does have a choice. They could choose to get shot, right? They, they don't have to get married. They could get shot instead, right? They, 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 they've, they've chosen. They have chosen, you know, to take this action in, 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 
as an alternative to dying, right? That's still a choice. Um, that's, that's not the same. Again, there's duress. And then I'm not saying there's no duress there. I'm not saying it's not an example of coercion, but I am saying you still have a choice. Not like Ethelos. Ethelos didn't have a choice, right? After Morgoth just overwhelms her mind and dominates her spirit, she doesn't have a choice anymore. Diriel's not there, right? And I, and I think that we show Diriel not, um, um, not doing that. Um, so, uh, Diriel would choose if she took an oath, she would choose. It would be binding because she chose it. Even if it's at a, you know, like if, if Morgoth were to say to Diriel, swear an oath that you will never attempt to escape again, or I'm going to slaughter everybody. And Diriel says, it would be better for me to take this oath binding myself than to let everybody else die. Is she under duress? Is she being coerced? Oh yeah, she's being coerced, but she's still choosing, right? She's still making the choice of her own free will to bind herself by this oath instead of allowing this other consequence to happen. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, now that's a really excellent, um, question, Rhiannon. Why would Morgoth not make every prisoner swear that oath? I don't know why he wouldn't make them all swear that oath. Uh, unless he's just doing it. Like, maybe maybe Morgoth doesn't take it all that seriously. That is to say, maybe Morgoth A doesn't really believe they can escape. Um, so he's just torturing her. And thinks it's a fit and even an amusing torture to make his captive Feanorian swear an oath, um, uh, you know, an oath at her own expense. He would find that funny, I think, uh, a, a fitting and amusing form of torture to his Feanorian prisoner. Um, but, uh, but also again, I think I think he could he could you know he's not doing it because he's worried she's going to succeed. Uh, he's just doing it because uh he's uh because she's a fanorian and it's cool um uh, exactly as nick says their last uh uh their last escape attempt was kind of pitiful in the end yeah it was it did not pan out um did not have a high high and and what's more how much does morgoth care if they escape i mean like he'd rather they didn't but I don't know how bothered he is or he would be. Um, so anyway, but the point, Rhiannon, is that this sets her up to be self-sacrificial. Um, her taking the oath is an act of self-sacrifice on the one hand because she knows if she takes this oath, she cannot escape. She can't leave. Um, and um, yeah, if she takes the oath, she can't leave. So she is sacrificing herself. But that doesn't change the fact that she is still determined to work around the oath however she can. And what I like about that is it, it's, an, it's a really interesting foil for the bigger question about the big oath, right? What kind of options do the Feanorians really have? This is an issue that's already come up in our discussions and is going to come up more in future years. It's going to come up all the way until we get Mithros and Maglor debating after the War of Wrath, 
right? Um, the question is, what really are their... Uh, yes, they're bound by their oath, but what does that mean? What are the real consequences? How much... What can they do and can't do, and how does that work? Um, and so this gives us... Um, this give, gives us an opportunity um, to um, explore those boundaries, to show her exploring those boundaries, which has implications for her husband and her brothers-in-law, right? Um, what options they could have if they tried, right? If they really wanted uh, to work, if they really felt and believed that the oath they were bound by was for their destruction, um, what kind of opportunities do they have to subvert it, work against it? You know, um, so, yeah. Um, anyway, um, so now Rihanna and I agree. No, I, we, we can show her swearing. and We don't have to show Morgoth in order to show her oath because we don't have to show, the oath doesn't have to happen on screen, Right. Um, all we need is for Rogrin to be like, Diriel, come on, join us. We're breaking out. And Diriel will be like, no can do. Sorry. Not, you know, or again, even before the breakout, right? They come to Diriel and they're like, uh, you know, we're busting out the joint, you know, you want in. And she's like, can't boys, I got to stay, um, sworn oath, but I'll help as far as my oath will allow. Um, so this also prevents this also prevents us having to invent a reason why she can't escape why they succeed and she fails um i don't like the idea of her being injured or something cuz again injury injuries are surmountable by noldor um their roof work differently so um you know like her, her having a sprained ankle and, and, uh, you know, fallen behind everybody else. It's, it's not going to fly, uh, in an older in context, I think. Um, uh, and anyway, like, I don't want it to, the oath situation also answers the question, why did they leave her behind? You know, um, like even if she couldn't come, even if she couldn't walk, why didn't Rogan sling her over his shoulder and then keep whacking people with a hammer? Um, so, um, uh, anyway, uh, I, I think, um, it also, yeah, Nick, it sets her up as a, as a more prominent role. She, she's going to be the spokesperson prisoner because Morgoth is going to make cruel use of this, right? Um, since he knows she can escape, he can give her the run of the place. He can make her the messenger, right? He can be summoning her. Uh, to his and like giving her like you know go tell your fellow prisoners this or go run this little errand for me around Angband right because she can't escape he knows she can't escape because he knows it's binding on her um, and uh, so yeah there's lots of ways in which we can include Diriel now we have to figure out what Diriel's ultimate fate is um, when and how she's ultimately going to die um, but I don't think that happens yet I don't think it's a season five question so I think that we save that but anyway I'm not. I'm not a hundred percent sold on the oath thing, but I like it. And I certainly like it better than any other reason or unreason for Diriel not escaping with everybody else. Um, there's a kind of simplicity to this. Uh, and, and I particularly like the kind of narrative work that we can do about the whole, what is the status of elves and oaths anyway? Right. So that 
when people come back to the oath of Feanor, you know, again, on multiple occasions, we can have this reminder. This is what happens. It's real. Right. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, we'll, we'll figure that out. I mean, yeah. Does she survive all the way to the war of wrath, Marie? Maybe she does. Maybe she does. Um, do we meet Diriel in the Baron and Luthien story? Do Baron and Luthien encounter her? Or does she see them? I mean, is there... I, maybe, right? She'll be around, right? So I certainly want to keep her around for next season. Um, I don't know. We'll see. Um, does, she have a, does she have a role uh, in the, uh, the Near Nithar Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. Okay. Um, but, oh... Lincoln, you asked this a while back, will definitely have both men and women. We're not going to have the men escaping, leaving just the women behind in prison. We won't, we definitely won't have uh, that kind of gender segregation in the escape attempt. Definitely not. Um, right. Gwyndor needs to escape Marie. Absolutely. I yeah, know we've got lots of work for Diriel to do in Angband. Um, lots of opportunities. Um, yeah. Oh, Rhiannon, oh man, you're, I wasn't even thinking about that, but you are so right. Kurufin's wife, like having Baron and Luthien, who just finished with Kurufin, encountering Kurufin's wife in Angband? Oh my goodness, the potential there. Whew. Oh man. Um, uh, just imagine the awkwardness, Rhiannon, right? them running into Dirio and Dirio being like, have you news of my husband? And they're like, um, yeah, uh, uh, awkward. Um, but anyway, okay. So, um, we will, uh, we'll see, we'll see how we build that. I'm not wanting to build a major, yeah, I'm not wanting to interrupt, uh, the, uh, triumphant, uh, and dramatic, uh, climax of, uh, Baron and Luthien's journey, uh, with a, 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 a an awkward and inconsequential discussion with Diriel. But, uh, but still, I, I, I think we could give her a role. I, I have this, I don't know what it is yet, but I have the sense that something pretty cool could be done there. Um, um, oh, Rihanna, and you're right. She would, she would recognize Kurafin's knife, would she? Did he get it before she left or after? Anyway, whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, Florence says you can still see the imprint. His face left on my fist. Yeah. <laughs> and Lincoln says, "Let's talk about Kellabrimbor instead." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, oh, good. He he did get it before, not long before, but he did get it before. Good, good. Okay, all right. That's good. So I'm 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 ready to roll with the oath idea. At least let's let's work it out and see how it how it plays out uh, uh, as we as we work through the episodes themselves. Um, that's really good. Um, and I like the idea. But the one last thing that I'll mention, uh, it's just as a side note, people were suggesting that there can be Winrogren. Uh, and Anile and company escape when that when that group escapes from Angband, they can also be rescued heroically uh, by people from the outside. And I loved the suggestion that that is where um, uh, where what's his face um, Haldor earns his reputation. Um, Haldor is the one who comes back 
with Rogrin and Anil against all odds. And that's where Fing, uh, Fingen and Fing, for that Fingen and Fingolfin are like this guy. Yeah. Um, this is, uh, this is uh, Hodor. That's what I meant. Hodor. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I've been talking for a long time. Um, uh, yes. Uh, this is where, this is where Hodor gets his, um, uh, gets, you know, earns his spurs, uh, and earns the respect, uh, of them. And they realize that this guy, uh, and his people, uh, really can be an asset. Um, so, okay. All right. Um, okay, good. That's plenty. That's a lot. We got a lot accomplished. We went over time, but we got a lot accomplished. Um, so let's leave it there. That means we'll have to come back to Huan next time. So we'll come back and we'll, we'll do, we'll, we'll, we'll figure out the Huan story, which will help us to tie the last bits on the, uh, the villain stories. Um, because uh, we, 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 I want to come back to Drogluin when we think about uh, Huon, and I want to come back to Karkaroth as well, because we've got to set that up also. Um, and then we will um, uh, we will get to um, starting to think about the outline, uh, the episode outline, going through the, the episode outline in detail uh, next time. That'll probably be a more than one session discussion anyway, uh, but we'll try to begin that next time, and then we'll uh, probably finish it the time after. Um, but um, anyway, cool. Um, so um, the so October 4th, uh, Sunday, October 4th at 8.30 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time is going to be the first uh, the first episode script discussion. Um, so uh, that's going to be cool. So we will... Um, uh, yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, so we'll definitely be uh, uh, beginning to, to be working on things soon. So, right, so those of you who are interested in participating, uh, go to the discussion boards and you can find the details there about how you can be, how you can be involved there. Um, okay, excellent. Um, more next time. Thanks, everybody, uh, as always, for your wonderful ideas uh, and the, the fun brainstorming opportunities with everyone. And uh, I will see everybody next time. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.